This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have an episode of NBC's The Story Behind the Headlines, focusing on Russia's winter offensive. It is hosted by Caesar Surchinger and first aired on January 3rd, 1943. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. The story behind the headlines. In cooperation with the American Historical Association, we again present Caesar Searchinger, noted foreign correspondent and writer, in an informal analysis of the news. Mr. Searchinger retraces the events of the past to help you in arriving at a fuller understanding of what is happening today. Mr. Searchinger's subject tonight is Russia's Winter Offensive Number 2. Mr. Searchinger. Good evening. The sensation of the week was the Russian war communique concerning the Winter Offensive on the Volga and the Don. Released on New Year's Eve, it came as a fillip to New Year's celebrations all over the world. Added to this summary of Russian victories was yesterday's news of the recapture of Velikiluki, one of the famous strong points on the Central Front, and today's announcement of the retaking of Mozdok, deep in the Caucasus. All this calls for cool analysis and a warning not to let our optimism get out of hand. As the winter offensive runs into its seventh week, we see that it has already accomplished much, and that the results are far from decisive as yet. A great deal has been said about encirclement, about trapping the Nazi armies, not only before Stalingrad, but in the Caucasus. But it must be remembered that no army is decisively beaten until it surrenders, nor does it cease to be a danger until it is destroyed. No German army in the present offensive has yet surrendered, and the armies which are said to have been routed are still in the field. However, according to the Russian communique, over 300,000 men and officers have been killed or taken prisoner. This alone is an important victory in the war of attrition, which has already begun, and it is without precedent for the Russian side in the present war. The Russian communique helps us to clear up a rather confusing picture. Hitherto, it has been difficult to follow the campaign, although the outlines of the Don-Volga region are pretty familiar by now. There is the long line of the lower Volga centering at Stalingrad, and further west, the wide sweep of the Don, that enormous elbow pointing eastward towards the long-contested Volga city. For months, the area between the two rivers, at one point only 50 miles wide, has been the bloodiest battlefield of the war. We must bear firmly in mind the picture of this German salient reaching right into Stalingrad and to the Volga bank the high watermark of the Nazi eastward drive. Six weeks ago, the Russians launched a typical pincer's movement with fresh armies striking fiercely at the roots and sides 
of this Stalingrad wedge. The Russian pincers, starting northwest and southwest of Stalingrad, reached the banks of the Don, pushing towards their bight and virtually encircling 22 Axis divisions or upwards of 200,000 troops. It would, however, be slightly inaccurate to say that this Axis army was trapped. To trap or contain an army so that it can be wiped out afterwards would require a surrounding army at least double the size, say 45 divisions. The Russians evidently could not concentrate such an overwhelming mass and still continue offensive operations elsewhere as they did. The Germans have, moreover, transformed the so-called trap into one of their famous hedgehogs, fortified areas which are very difficult to reduce. This, in part, explains why the Nazis still managed to hang on in the blockhouses of Stalingrad itself. So much for the Stalingrad encirclement, which the Russian communique describes as the first stage of the offensive. The second stage began on December 16th, with an attack across the Middle Don on a 40-mile front, about 175 miles west of Stalingrad. This drive smashed south and southwestward into the rear of the German forces inside the Don Elbow. It advanced from 90 to 125 miles at different points and bypassed the town of Milorovo on both sides. Milorovo is not only an important German supply depot, but the junction of two main railroad lines, from east to west and from north to south. These railroads connect key centers like Rostov and Kharkov, both of which must be major Russian objectives if the offensive is to accomplish its main purpose. But these places are still respectively 100 and 150 miles beyond the Russian spearheads, and Milorova itself is still in German hands. The third stage of the Russian offensive, simultaneous with the second, was and is a drive to the southwest of Stalingrad along the main railroad connecting Stalingrad with Rostov and the Black Sea. It was the cutting of this railroad, you'll remember, by the Nazis that started their drive into the Caucasus last July. About last Wednesday, the Russians retook Kotelnikov, an important station on this railroad about 90 miles down the line. They have now reached a point about halfway between Stalingrad and Rostov. Meanwhile, they have begun to push other spearheads straight south into the Kalmyk steppes in an effort to drive the Germans out of the northern, northern Caucasus area. They have now reached and taken the Kalmyk capital of Elista and have captured a significantly large number of trucks. This is an almost roadless, desolate region inhabited till recently by nomad tribes. Altogether, the Great Winter Offensive has liberated over a thousand towns and villages, regained large stretches of territory and netted enormous amounts of booty. More important, perhaps, is the capture of Nazi communications. Both the main railroads to Stalingrad have been cut, and so has one of the lateral lines. So far, this does not, however, sufficiently disrupt the German supply system, which depends to a large extent on trucks, many of them with caterpillar treads for cross-country work. Here is another reason why the encircled German armies are not entirely isolated as yet, and why islands of German resistance are likely to be difficult to destroy. Last year, on the Central Russian Front, the Germans successfully supplied their beleaguered forces, notably at Staraya Russa, by air. 
This year, the beleaguered Stalingrad hedgehog is said to be relying more and more on air transport for food. This may prove far more difficult since an increasing part of the Nazis' air strength is now needed in North Africa. It is still too early to estimate the full value of the Russian offensive to date, but it already presents some interesting contrasts with the winter offensive of last year. That offensive was simply a frontal attack along the line of least resistance against a retreating enemy. The present one is a strategic movement against an enemy who means to stay put. Last year, the Russians pushed back the German armies, regaining chunks of territory all along the 2,000-mile front. Much of that territory, in fact, was more or less willingly abandoned by the Germans, except for that famous chain of strong points, or hedgehogs, including Veliki Luki, Staraya Russa, Rzhev, Vyazma, and Aurel. The present offensive, however, is, a sim- is not a simple push, but a well-planned, intricate strategic operation on the grand scale. It comprises a series of pincer's movements and spearhead thrusts into the German flanks. It is designed to cut off large areas, envelop strong forces, and cut supply lines at critical points. In short, this time the Russians are not interested in taking back strips of land, but in reconquering whole provinces and annihilating the invading armies. The Russian tactics, too, are different this year. They've been using mobile artillery with great effect, at direct firing range, and a large number of excellent tanks. These they've been accumulating all summer and all fall, holding them back while waiting for the big push, a remarkable example of confident leadership, for the retreating Red Armies were taking terrific punishment all the time. The Russians are also advancing at much greater speed this year. This is important, for much depends on their ability to take the German strong points quickly, so they can move on to the ultimate goals. Their principal goal in the southern offensive is, of course, to drive the Nazis from the Caucasus and the eastern Ukraine. The Nazi invasion of the Caucasus has been likened to a grasping arm into the store cupboard past the sliding door of heavy steel. Its success depended on whether there was someone strong enough to put a shoulder against the door and make it move. Well, the door has begun to move, but it's still far from being shut. Not only is there still a gap of a hundred miles, but those hundred miles, those last hundred miles will be the hardest. The Germans will do their utmost to keep that door from sliding shut. But the Russians appear to be out for more. They are aiming to undermine the German positions all along the line from Leningrad to the Caucasus Mountains and the Black Sea. To do that means finding a way to crack those aforementioned strong points or centers of resistance that the Germans have established all along the front. These so-called hedgehogs, with bristles represented by pillboxes, blockhouses, and multilateral interlocking fire points, have in most cases defied the most violent mass assaults. The Russians succeeded in reducing one of these hedgehogs Mojaisk last winter after one of the fiercest artillery duels of the war. More recently, they failed at Staraya Russa, despite complete encirclement and concentric attack. Rzhev, too, has resisted periodical attacks for nearly a year. 
That is why the capture of Veliki Luki must rank as one of the few really conclusive victories of the Russian war, for it was one of the key hedgehog positions of the Nazi front. This may mean that the Russians have found their answer to the new form of German defensive warfare, just as General Montgomery found his answer to Rommel's version of it at El Alamein. The conditions on the two fronts are radically different, of course. In Russia, the intervening spaces are defended by mobile troops. In the shelterless desert of Egypt, deep minefields played an important role. Montgomery cracked Rommel's defense in depth by the use of direct artillery fire and infantry, opening a path for tanks, thus reversing the Blitzkrieg pattern of armored attack. We do not yet know the Russians' method, Russian methods in detail. It might be useful to learn them, for conditions in Tunisia are similar in some respects to Russia. Here, the Germans managed to construct a defensive system near Bizet and Tunis, which threw General Anderson's army back within 20 miles of its goal. We are witnessing the latest phase of that perennial contest between the merits of attack and defense, which makes up an interesting part of the history of war. The War of 1914 became a three years stalemate because the defense, thanks to trenches, machine guns, and barbed wire, had become stronger than the attack. At the outset of the present war, the Germans were able to restore the war of movement by the use of fast tanks in conjunction with dive bombers and motorized infantry, and so attack regained the upper hand. But when the Germans were unable to knock out the Russian army in a single Blitzkrieg campaign, they in their turn had to devise a new and stronger system of defense. This hedgehog system has proved a fairly effective antidote to armored and motorized attack. Apparently, the Allies are now beginning to master this system by tactics of their own. Summing up, the Russian achievements are certainly impressive. Between them and conclusive success stand great difficulties due to the necessity of holding a 2,000-mile front and breaking strong points of resistance all along that front. But all the while, the Russians are weakening the Axis striking power. They are keeping Hitler from arresting his reserves during the winter months. They are preventing him from undertaking any really radical countermeasures to our opening of the North African front, such as an attack through Spain, for instance. They are complicating his problem of what the experts call logistics, or bringing men and material to bear on strategic points. For as we increase our forces in Tunisia, Hitler must increase, increase his. And so long as the Russians retain the initiative, these reinforcements cannot be taken from the Eastern Front. These Axis difficulties are bound to increase, but it would be foolish to believe that they, are, that they have reached a critical stage. For the moment, we must not look for quick, sensational results. The stakes in Russia and Tunisia are enormous, and decisions will therefore be contested with ferocious will. We must not be fooled into thinking that victory is near. The hard work has hardly begun. Good night. You have been listening to Caesar Searchinger, whom we've presented in cooperation with the American Historical Association. The story behind the headlines is a public service feature and has originated in New York. This is the National Broadcasting.